Authorization required. Captain's log. The impossible has happened. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Enter authorization code. We might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. Our mission is to go forward. But it's just begun. There's still much to do. Still so much to learn. Security authorization accepted. Command codes verified. Transfer complete. You're listening to An Hour with the Continuing Committee with your host, Charlie Plain. My name is Nathan Miracle, also known as Gooey Chewy. So where did the nickname Gooey Chewy come from? It's a long story. Uh, I have always been into making dream carts. One of the first ones I made was the Mighty Chewbacca. Uh, that was for Star Wars, of course. Uh, when I started playing Star Trek, I wanted a more Trek-sounding name, so I became Chewbacca Founder. And then uh, that morphed into Gooey Chewy. Funny it morphed, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so where, what part of the world are you from? And tell everybody out there a little bit about your history with the Star Trek card games. Well, I was born in Tennessee, but I've lived in North Carolina for the past 17 years or so. I have played Decipher games since, uh, well, I'm not sure how long ago. I started with Star Trek about the time Necessary Evil came out. I remember that because there was one box left at the store and I didn't get it because I didn't know how rare it was. Um, it was gone the next week. Never found any more. Uh, and I've been playing and making dream cards and hanging around on the forums ever since. Well, I think everybody in the community knows you in one way or another. Um, something that happened in the past year, though, that brought you to the public's eye was the, the Make It So competition. Uh, to those of you out there who may not know, Make It So was a competition that was sort of inspired by reality shows where it was a um, competition to become an assistant designer for a future expansion. Uh, we started with, what was it, 20? 20. Yeah. Started with, with 20, 20 contestants uh, and then eliminated one every week or so. And you ended up in second, third, second or third? Uh, well, Wayne's Last Clone and I uh, tied for a second, I guess. But I, I'd count myself a second because I got the Tulaberry team in. True. So so tell us a little bit about what attracted you to make it so. And, you know, six months outside of the competition, are, do you regret it? Do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on it? You know, six months out of the last one and maybe with a new one coming in, in 2011. Well, uh, like I said, I've always loved making dream cards. I've always been about what could happen in the game rather than what is actually happening. Uh, I'm actually better at um, dealing with new cards than I am existing ones. Uh, so as soon as I heard about the possibility of getting to make cards that could actually you know, see the light of day in the game, I knew I had to jump on that chance. I enjoyed the entire process. I would definitely do it again if, if given the chance. I don't regret it at all. Was it something that you actually learned out of, or was it really just sort of a, this is kind of stupid, just going through the motions? Or do you feel that now you know more about making 2E cards than you did before? Yeah, I went into it kind of with the attitude of, oh, I've, I've been making cards so long, I'm, I'm not going to learn anything from this. But I, I was quite surprised. I, I think I'm much better at making cards now and making them balanced, uh, which has been kind of a problem on the dream card boards because everybody likes the broken cards. But I, I, I think the cards I make now are, in general, more balanced than the cards I would have made before. Yeah, I always... I never won. I used to do dream cards a lot back in the Decipher era, and I never won too many competitions because I always tried to make cards that were balanced and, and right. And the, like you said, the ones that tend to win are uh, overpowered or, or really good. So, now, what did you win out of Make It So? Uh, I won a designer card. So, I, I got to do that. I 
understand that's going to be in an upcoming set. And then I also won the opportunity for my team, the Tulaberry team, to be playtested for a future set. Cool. So the Tulaberry team, that was the Dosai and the Karma, the, the merchants of the Dominion? That's correct, yes. Uh, so that would be two new species for them, which is kind of a big deal because they have some cards that key off species. Uh, and it also gives them a native source of acquisition, which is completely new for them. So just talk us through what the Tulaberry team did in your version of it. Obviously, none of these cards have hit playtesting yet, so who knows what they'll end up in the final version. But what was your vision of it, and how did they work? Yeah, um, the original idea came up. Uh, I was looking at doing a different team. Uh, I, in fact, I was looking at doing Demar's Dissonance, and I was going to have a theme for them to have more events in your core than an opponent's core. So I had an event that didn't do anything, but just sat in the core to give you another event. Uh, for various reasons, I decided not to go with Demar's Dissonance. So I took the concept of a card that doesn't help you at all and transferred it to the Tulaberry team and changed into Tulaberry 1. So the idea was that these guys, they're traders, they deal with uh, goods and they give them to your opponent so that they get some benefit now and then your opponent gets some benefit later. The idea is that they get rather hefty benefits but they have to rely on the opponent giving back the, uh, the fuel for them to get those benefits. So, give me a, an example, like, I, how do I give you the Tulaberry Wine? Do I just play it into your core, or, or how would it work like that? Uh, the way that I have them, or at least I have them for the contest, was you play Tulaberry Wine into your own core, and you commanded it, but then uh, different cards would let you give command of the Tulaberry Wine to an opponent, and you would get some immediate benefit from that. And then the opponent could give it back to you to get some benefit for himself. Right, yeah. And uh, the way that was worded was at the start of their turn, they could shuffle it back into the owner's deck to, uh, I believe it was spend an extra counter. Uh, the exact benefit wasn't really all that important, just so long as they had some reason to give it back. Right, because you didn't, I mean, otherwise you'd end up in some sort of stalemate situation, and that's that's not any fun for a mechanic like that, so. Right, and um, for that reason, I also made some cards that gave you a benefit for however many Tulaberry Wands your opponent commanded. So they could use the strategy of, hey, I'll hold on to them and I'll you know, not take the benefit for myself, but then the, the player using the Tulaberry Wand got some other benefit. So let me ask you a random question. Did you play much... Uh, you said you picked up the game after Necessary Evil, or did you play much during when Second Edition first started? I did not play much during... Uh, that first time period. I played Lord of the Rings uh, during that time period, um, so I, I didn't get into a track until a little bit later. Well, how well do you know the cards that are in the second edition base set? Uh, pretty well. I've gone through all of them and tried to memorize as many of them as I could. Uh, I believe there's um, Crystalline Entity does something similar to that. That might be in the first set. I think that's in Call to Arms, but yeah, it's I I play it and then give it to you to do something, and then you can give it back. But one of the things that I do on this podcast is a random card review, and what I have in front of me here is a sealed, unopened pack of second edition. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open this pack. No, I have it right here. Uh, I'm going to open this pack, and we're going to do a random card review on the rare inside. Excellent. So let's open up this pack, which is one of my favorite things to do. We go three back to the rare. The rare is Borak, Klingon Intelligence Agent. Ooh. So he is a, a three-cost Klingon with a staff star, attributes of 647. He has Engineer, Intelligence, Physics, and Transporters. And his ability says, when an opponent downloads a card, that opponent must place it on top of his or her deck instead of his or her hand. So, what are your thoughts on this card? I think this card is underused. Uh, intelligence is a rare skill for the Klingons. I believe they have two intelligence personnel, uh, Borak and then a non-unique one that's also in the, the first set. Um, physics, also not 
high on the, the Klingon list of skills. And the ability to just completely shut down the downloading, uh, making your opponent actually spin the counters to get the cards. He's, he's good. Right, and in fact, didn't isn't one of the rituals sort of doing this for everybody? Yes, uh, the Klingon ritual, actually, the Klingon tea ritual. Okay, so is this guy, you know, 22 sets later, still relevant in the game? Well, I think he is underused, partially because he is from 22 sets back. I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the original cards. Uh, I think he could still be relevant. It might depend on your meta a little bit, um, meaning it depends on what people close to you play. Uh, if you've got somebody playing a Klingon deck with uh, Guidance of the Council, they could be downloading you know, five or six cards a turn, and if they have to spend five or six counters on it, that's going to really slow them down. Yep. I guess uh, the, the only thing with him is that if you if you play a card like Kimtar, where it's download and do something with it, he doesn't affect those. Um, yeah, but there's not too many of those outside of Kimtar. That's true. That is a true statement. So overall, Borak, you think he's he's underused and he's still relevant in today's game? Yeah, one thing that's interesting about him is I don't think he would really be uh, made now. I wouldn't make him after Make It So. Uh, I might have before. But he's one of those broadcast personnel. Yeah. You can play him, leave him at your headquarters, and his game tech still goes off regardless of where he is. So he can sit there protected and you don't have to risk him. Right. And I think that if you look at these cards that are in the second edition base set, and Brad and I have had uh, a lot of conversations about this, you see a lot of 1E influence on those early cards. And and this type of thing is definitely part of that. But another good example is um, Telek Ramor. He, he's pretty much exactly the 1E version. Uh, you know, not particularly useful in a second edition game. And, and Early in second edition, they overweighted the value of drawing cards in right. in second edition. You know, having the ability to spend counters to draw cards is they underestimated how good that was. I think, and so there are so many cards in, in Premier that are all about drawing extra cards because that's huge in one e. You know, a, a card like Vosh, even where you can get a card back from your discard pile and then draw a card, or, or get a bonus card if you're with the card. That's huge, but in, in second edition, it's, it's you know, who uses that anymore? Although, she did just become printable today, so maybe I'm going to eat my words on that one. Yeah, um, you know, I, I just started playing 1E recently. Uh, one of my friends got me into it, and that's one thing I've definitely noticed. I built a Romulan deck that was all about denial, and, you know, I did a great job of making sure that my opponent never completed a mission, never had the right personnel to complete a mission. But I was playing one card at a time because I underestimated how important drawing cards would be. Mm -hmm. So that that is a definite difference between the two games. And I know it's one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about in first edition is that there is a a big inequity in the amount of cards that certain affiliations can draw. And the ones that tend to win uh, are the ones that have a lot of card drawing and a lot of free playing. And I know we, we've tried to help that with the Romulans. Uh, the remote drone is actually a fairly decent drawing engine, depending on mission selection, what your opponent's playing, but they need a little bit more work. So, Yeah, I had the unfortunate disadvantage of playing against a Starfleet deck, and the Enterprise was huge and just blew my, uh, blew my little ship out of the water. Yeah, I've got a trick that I use with them where I keep two drones in hand. Well, I, I keep a drone in hand and a drone in place, so at the start of my turn I can... If, if my drone's too far away from them, I bounce it back to my hand and then I play the second one, but that uses your card play every turn. So unless you have enough free plays to get other stuff in play, you're, you're pretty much doing nothing every turn but playing the Raptor just to draw one or two cards. So it, yeah, it depends on who you're playing. It can be effective or, or not, but... You know, for the cost of one seed slot, you get the time location and you get the all the stuff you need for it. So it, it's a pretty decent 
engine for Romulans, trade one seed slot for two cards a turn in most games, that's pretty good. So Yeah. My my main goal with it was actually to start the game with the Senator on Romulus, and then I used uh, Prejudice and Politics, which is backwards compatible. Oh, yeah. Because so. I mean, you get to start with two Romulans that way. You get the Admiral and the Anar guy, and then you just need to play a Romulan, and you're good. So Yeah, I used uh, Assigned Support Personnel to do the third one. Sounds good to me. So, so yeah, I'm really happy to see 1E coming back into the forefront and getting a lot of support and seeing some people come back and play 1E after a long break. One of the things that you're very well known about in the community is speculative card lists. Those of us out there who may not know, what is a speculative card list? Basically what I do is come up with a bunch of ideas for what might be in the upcoming set. Uh, I do this for fun. Uh, there's no you know, rewards or anything to it. But uh, it gives me the advantage of also, because I'm collecting all the information about what is in the upcoming set, what we know is going to be there, I also have some idea of what else is going to be in there. Uh, so, for example... I've seen some questions where somebody asks, well, are there any personnel of this affiliation? Well, I've accumulated all this data and realized, okay, we've got this personnel of this slot and that personnel of this slot, and that doesn't leave room for such and such personnel. Uh, so basically it's just organizing all the data we have and filling in the gaps and coming up with a list of what could be in the next set. So how did you get into, like, what was the first one of these that you made for Star Trek? Uh, for Star Trek? Ooh. Just guess. Have you been doing this for a long time, or? Yeah, what's the first set that came after Necessary Evil? That would Fractured be Time? Fractured Time. That's yeah. probably the first one I did. So you know what? It is. I remember doing that one. So tell me, just walk us through the process. What's the first thing you do when you sit down to make a card list? You know, and I know for a fact, you, you did one for... Uh, extreme measures, even before you knew what it was called, or do anything about the expansion. So, how That's does true, what's yes. the first thing you do? The the first thing I do is look for any piece of information I can grab onto to give me an idea of what might be the theme of the set. I've noticed that sets usually have some sort of theme running all the way through them. It may not be a very strong theme. In some cases, it is a strong theme, such as with uh, this side of paradise. But any one piece of information I can get can branch out and give me ideas for what else might be in the set. Uh, in fact, with Extreme Measures, I latched on to the playtest title of Jordan. And I knew that was based on it being set 23. So I figured there might be some sort of sports theme. So in the original card list, most of the cards that I had on there had some sort of sports theme to it. So you, you come up with... 45 or 54 cards that you think fit the theme. You give them titles and you throw it out there. Pretty much. Now, to to date, two cards have been spoiled. Um, well, as of the time we were recording this, two cards have been spoiled. Um, right. One on the last Section 31, we spoiled a dilemma. And uh, we spoiled a personnel last week because I didn't get it, or two weeks ago, because I didn't get a chance to put a Christmas episode up. What do you do when you get a spoiler? How does that, like, you've got your original list, now you've got some spoilers. Tell it, how do you, how do you proceed? What do you do then? All right, well, the first few spoilers always throw the list into chaos. And that's because, you know, suddenly I've got a whole different possibility for what the theme might be. Uh, in fact, more so than the two spoilers, the actual name of the set, I kind of threw the list into chaos, and I realized... This doesn't have a sports theme at all. Uh, so, basically I went back, I looked at all the, the titles that I had, decided which ones were still close enough to fit the theme, which ones needed to be changed, and changed the ones that needed to, to be changed. One thing that I do is I keep in mind all the card titles that I've used before. Uh, it's kind of like keeping a cut list when you're designing sets. Uh, so later on, when I make another speculative card list in the future, I can go back to this one and say, you know, I used this card title, but it wasn't in the set. I can reuse that. 
So at what point do you start to be able to actually make the informed deductions about the, the content of the expansion or what can be where? Usually pretty early. Uh, if you know what you're looking for, you, you can get some good ideas. Uh, for example, you've actually given out a lot of leaks about what the next team is going to be. Uh, so I've actually written down uh, all the little hints that we've gotten. Well, uh, so I give these out in the chat room occasionally. Correct. So everybody out there who has the chance should come and sit in the chat room because you never know what you're going to find out. Why Absolutely. don't you share some of these hints for the for everybody to hear? All right. Uh, we know that they will be mechanically similar to an existing team. Uh, we know that they are based on an existing keyword. Uh, it is an existing keyword, not a new one that's made for the team. Uh, they have a supporting event that is named for or named the same as a 1E objective, and that ev event has the same picture as that 1E objective. And then I also saw that you posted today. It is a Bajoran, Borg, Maquis, or Next Generation uh, team. Okay, so that's four confirmed facts. Obviously, subject to change, things might happen. It's not likely this late in development that an entire team is going to change, but you never know. So, four solid pieces of information. What, what's your thought process on making an educated guess on what the team is going to be? All right, well... The one I'm most interested in is the fact that it has an event that's named the same as 1E objective and the fact that it has the same picture as that objective. That's actually two hints in one because I can go through those objectives and see which ones have pictures that could be used. Uh, for example, before we learned the four possible affiliations, there's a Dominion-based one that I thought might uh, work. Let me look up the title for it while we're talking about it. But I decided that it could not work because it had the same picture as an existing card in second edition. One thing that I do use a lot is the first edition and the second edition deck builders. I can look through uh, all of the cards at a glance and see what what's missing and what uh, still needs to be made. Uh, the picture is the same one as on the uh, the changeling infiltrator. Oh, okay. I know what you're talking about. I can't think of the name of the card, but yeah. Yeah, so I know it can't be that one because it has the same picture. So that can't be the case. So you have to do a little bit of research. Just having the clues, you can't say, well, that doesn't give me anything. You have to think about what they could mean. My best guess at this point is that it is a Bajoran team. There is an objective, Bajoran resistance cell. That would lead me to believe that it could be based on the keyword Bajoran resistance. Uh, and there are any number of teams that could be mechanically similar to. Uh, my personal favorite for the one that might be similar to is vastly outnumbered. Uh, possibly doing something when your opponent meets certain conditions mm -hmm. and your personnel get better. Well, that's an interesting guess, and I, I suppose we'll find out sooner or later. So uh, is the next revision of your list going to feature Bajoran Resistance on it? Yes. Uh, I will go through, look at all the Bajoran Resistance personnel that we have, uh, see which ones might get new versions, and I will go through Memory Alpha. That's another big source that I use. And look up to see who all was in the Bajoran Resistance. So if there's anybody that we don't have a version of who was in the Bajoran Resistance, I can easily fit them into the card list. Okay. Now, what type of information helps you eliminate candidates? I, I know you mentioned earlier that you could look at uh, the numbers and things like that and figure out that there can't be such and such a card. What exactly are you looking for on, on hints there to help you make those decisions? Uh, well, at this point, it's a little bit hard to do that because I know that not all of the uh, numbers are set. So things could move around a little bit. Um, 
it's sometimes it's just as simple as looking at one card, seeing what card type that is, and knowing approximately how many cards are in uh, of a given type are in a set. For example, I always start my personnel about halfway through the set. So if a personnel gets revealed who's you know far less than halfway through the set, I know there's not going to be that many dilemmas, events, or interrupts, things like that. Equipment's usually the first thing to go. Uh, whereas if I see like a Bjorn personnel fairly late in the set, I realize that this set has fewer personnel than normal. So it's really those middle ones that give me the most information, uh, somewhere close to the middle of the set. What sources uh, are the most lucrative for you, and which ones are the most uh, not useful? And by source, I mean not only where do you get your information, but what types of spoilers help you the most, and what types of spoilers don't help you? Uh, the most lucrative source of information is usually the question and answer thread. People will ask off-the-wall questions that I never thought of. And the answers to those questions sometimes give out more information than I think the person who an who's answering the question really means to give out. Uh, so that's definitely one of the first places I look. The types of spoilers that give me the least information are ones that are just game text. Or just the card title without knowing where in the set it is because you know if I just have the card title I can just go in and delete one title and substitute that in wherever it would fit uh, so what really gives me the most information is when I know the, the number I think um, speculative card listing is changing a little bit now because of the teams we can usually expect one team in each set now so knowing something about that team tends to give me a good bit of information too so let's let's say that tomorrow uh, we put up the what I call the uh, the blurb or the sales text for the expansion, and it's that paragraph of text that tells you a little bit about what's in the expansion and what the themes of the expansion might be. So let's say that goes up tomorrow, and how does that shake up your list? And do do you stick with the, the sports theme? Or do you go back and say, okay, I know it's not the sports theme. I know it's this theme. I'm going to go back and repick stuff. I will definitely go back and repick stuff. Uh, knowing the theme for certain is really when the card list starts to, to take shape. And I can eliminate things that maybe are fun ideas, but I know really aren't going to be in there. For example, I've got one that's a, a board personnel. He's a meatball drone. Sounds <laughs> Swedish. I know that there's not going to be a drone named Meatball Drone. He's in there because you can name a drone anything. So I can't really predict what that drone might be. But once I get the the set theme, I can start taking stuff like that out and put in things that I know will fit the theme. Uh, another thing that actually helps me a lot, well, I'm not sure this helps me so much as throws a kink and everything, is when Brad does the um, things I see list. Mm -hmm. uh, and he'll list like 20 different things that he sees on pictures or in game text. Uh, that is an endless source of fun and frustration. frustration. Yeah, Brad, I, I know Brad loves the speculative card lists. And I know for a fact, Brad has put a lot of time and energy into his responses to Q&As to drive the speculative card list makers nuts. Uh, giving out information or misleading information. Uh, Brad Brad is a master craftsman when it comes to that. So, Yes, I remember one time when he uh, fooled me very well. Um, it was in the last set we kept getting little hints about uh, damaged Starfleet. And I eventually asked the question, does everybody in the damaged Starfleet team 
have one less integrity than their normal versions because I have noticed a pattern on them. Um, which noticing patterns is something that, that I've really found uh, helpful in making speculative card lists. I've done more of it since making speculative card lists. And his response was, everyone except Hoshi. I took that to mean that there was a Hoshi in the set. What he meant was that there is not a Hoshi in the set. Yes, Brad is tricky like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that one, um, I believe we had two or three speculative card lists going, and it, that, that one threw us all. So, as I'm sure you know, Brad, after this expansion releases, Brad will not be the lead designer for TUI anymore. Um, as someone who's worked with him and chatted with him, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that we're going to be in trouble, or do you think that, you know, it's... You know, I want to say this. Brad has done an amazing amount of work for this game over the past 10 years, getting very little money and very little credit for what he does. Um, I'm appreciative of everything he's done, and I'm, I'm glad that he has these new opportunities and he's moving on. I'm going to miss him, but I, I'm not at all angry with him, and I don't want anybody to be angry with him because he's making the best decision for him. But I want to know what you think about his departure and, and what the ramifications of that are going to be. Well, I'm very sad to see him go. Uh, love Brad. Love the fact that he put so much effort into confusing me on the speculative card lists. But at the same time, I think the game's in good hands. Uh, just looking at Make It So, we had 20 people who were willing, not only willing, but who wanted to step up and help design a set. And, you know, a lot of those people did a great job. I think getting down to the end, any of us would have been great as an assistant designer. Having that many people wanting to volunteer and knowing what they're doing, we're going to be fine going into the future. So somebody will step up to the plate. Absolutely. In fact, I, there are quite a few somebodies who are very talented and, and very willing and eager to work on future stuff. And, you know, we've only done a few tentative discussions about, you know, we're trying to get extreme measures finished. Once that's done, we'll, we'll take some time and, and figure out what the best move is. So I just really wanted to get your thoughts as someone who'd worked with Brad and, and, and uh, what your thoughts there were. So, well, I have a couple of pieces of information for you and I want to get your reaction as a speculative card maker, but you have to promise to me that you won't reveal any of this to anybody until Friday, when this goes up. Uh, I'll try to be as coy as I can. <laughs> so I will confirm your hypothesis of the team in Extreme Measures and tell you that it is, in fact, a Bajoran Resistance team. Excellent. It is one of the largest teams we have ever put together. It's not the largest, but it is, it's up there in terms of size. Okay. I will also tell you a little bit about Extreme Measures. Extreme Measures is what I call the spiritual successor to Necessary Evil. Good, good. Meaning, that was actually one of your uh, clues earlier, was that it was a successor to a previous expansion. Meaning, we are going to see a lot of lose five points. And correspondingly, we're going to see a lot of score five points. So, it is a... I don't want to call it I don't know if the quality of the sets is good as Necessary Evil. Because Necessary Evil was amazing, but the truth of the matter is a lot of those cards are out of date. You know, they're very rare cards, and there are some good cards in there, but for the most part, you're not really missing anything not having a lot of it, with a few exceptions. And right. as we make more and more stuff printable out of there, those go away. I, I consider this to be, you know, Necessary Evil 2 was one of my code names for this expansion while we were working on it. It takes a lot of those themes and updates them from the modern meta and runs with it throughout the the expansion. And uh, so given the clue that you were given earlier that um, the team is going to use is mechanically similar to another team, are you still guessing vastly outnumbered? Well, I know some people uh, with the clues that we were given were talking about possibly being similar to Equinox. Knowing that we might be losing a lot of points and gaining a lot of points, that might now become a real possibility. 
Um, but without the nucleogenic keyword uh, making you ignore the five points thing. Well, how about I give you a, a little taste? Okay. Let me pull up. I wasn't really planning on doing this, but we'll do it anyway. All right. Pull up an expansion here, and we will give you an example. And the people who presuppose that it is based on Equinox are actually correct. Ah, interesting. So the mechanic is essentially similar, which is instead of losing five points, you may do something else to power your abilities. So there are four or five people that take advantage of this. Let me give you an example of one of them. Uh, it is a. I'm not going to tell you who it is, because that wouldn't that would be too much fun. It is a version of a personnel that already exists. <laughs> I can hear your furious note taking. <laughs> that is correct. It is a male version of a personnel that already exists. He has four skills, attributes of. 566. He has a different icon than his previous version. Obviously has the keyword Bajoran Resistance. And his text is as follows. Order. Lose five points to unstop up to two stopped Bajoran Resistance personnel present. You may do this only once each turn. So he's sort of a similar to Rudolph Ransom in, in his ability. So. Now, I, there is a way. They do have a way to not lose points to use their ability, just like the Equinox, but with all the point scoring that's in this expansion, they may not need to do that. You might just be able to lose the points. And um, let's be honest, Bajoran Resistance, with just like old times, isn't Absolutely. does not have a way to does not lack a way to score points. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite tricks with them is to use just like old times along with Kern. And uh, one of my favorite cards in the entire game, quite a coincidence, and have Kern kill just that right one personnel and score another 30 points. Oh, yeah. Gotta love it. So, that's a little bit of information for your list making, so I'm sure on Friday after this goes up we'll get a nice update. But if you were going to ask me one question, what would it be to help you narrow down your list? All right. Well, I thought you might do that. So I've come up with a little game. I want you to choose a card whose title is likely to change, mm -hmm. but whose game text is pretty well set. Okay. And I'd like you to tell me what that card does. For example, if it was a board cutting beam, you might say, it's an event that lets my board assimilate a personnel in an engagement. And then what I'll do is I'll mark that card on my speculative card list on Friday once this is up uh, with whatever title I think would fit. Okay. Well, I will give you a title. It is called... This is a, this is a title that will not be the final title. Okay. But it'll give you a bit of insight into some of the stupid playtest titles we put on cards. I love those. It is called Engineer Arific. Engineer horrific. Okay. And I need to go look it up because I closed my window. Hang on here. That's okay. In the meantime, I'll figure out how to spell it. Uh, engineer horrific. Excellent. It is a dilemma. It is one of a new type of dilemma that show up in this expansion and that I'm hopeful we'll see more of in the future. Uh, it is based on the first edition dilemma, Odo's Cousin. So I'll have to whip that one up. Yes, that, that, that's a good bit of information for you. So, And given that there are still cards that don't have their final titles as of the time we're recording, if, if everything did have its final title, this would be number four. Okay. But there are plenty of cards that do have their final titles. So we're only down to like less than five or six that don't. So that just happens to be one of them. Okay. Um, I actually do have a pseudo-spoiler for everybody. Uh, one of my rewards for uh, coming in in the uh, semifinals in Make It So was my designer card. And uh, I understand that's coming up in this set. That is correct. There are actually three designer cards 
in this expansion. There's yours and your partner in crime, Kano's. Wayun's last clone had the same prize as you. And uh, Tobias Rasmussen, the 2010 World Championship champion, his card is in here as well. So there are three cards in this set that were designer card prizes, including yours, which is, the title is? Well, that's why it's not an actual spoiler. All I'm going to say is that I have the title of mine on the speculative card list. Oh, nice. So, so, on your speculative card list somewhere is the correct title and correct subtitle? That is correct. Okay, so the correct title and correct subtitle of your card, which will appear in Extreme Measures. And and I, I'm hopeful we're going to get a, a little article from you sometime to put up on the website about this when we, when we get to spoilers. You will. Absolutely. So... Can't wait to read that and see what it is. And I'll tell you what. Let's play one true three with this. Are you familiar oh, with one true three? That sounds like fun. All right. Uh, I, I did a article on that one time, actually. Excellent. So this is what we're gonna do. You're gonna give us three titles off your speculative card list, two of which are not your card, and one of which is. And we will leave it to the community to guess. And I will send out a prize. To whomever guesses correctly. Oh, excellent. So, uh, what is the first title on your speculative card list? And this is the speculative card list version that will go up on Friday. Yes. So, what is the first title on your list? Alright. Now, I will say that all of these are ones that I consider doing as my uh, designer card. So, if you've heard me talking about my designer card before... It may not be that one. The first one is Odo, and his subtitle is Solid. The second one is Garth of Izar, and his subtitle is Criminally Insane. The third one is Trelane, and his subtitle is Squire of Gothos. All right, so the first one was what again? Odo, with the subtitle, Solid. So he would be a Bajoran affiliation human? Correct. Actually, I had his species as Solid. Oh, well, that works. I, fi I figured he wasn't quite human. So no, no shapeshifter keyword. No shapeshifter keyword. So we know that Bajoran's getting a lot of love in this set. But he really wouldn't have Bajoran resistance, but he could still be in there. There's always the chance for a, an off Bajoran or two. Right. So the second one was Garth of Izar. Now, I'm not a Trek expert, but that was one of the original series characters. That is correct, as was Trelane. So uh, Garth of Izar is fed? Garth of Izar uh, would be Federation. Would be Federation. Okay. Yes. Um, but he's criminally insane, so he wouldn't be quite the same as the Federation you might be used to. Okay. And the last one would be Trelane, obviously the uh, childlike, Q-like entity from the original series, Squire of Gothos. What affiliation would Trelane be? Well, Trelane uh, didn't really hold to any affiliations, so he would be non-aligned. And he insisted that he was a retired general. So he would not actually have the general keyword, but he would have a way to gain it. Okay. Sounds good to me. So one of those three cards that appear on your speculative card list, and we'll link to that card list in the show notes, is an actual card designed by you that will appear in Extreme Measures. That is correct. Outstanding. So real quick, Nathan, before we wrap up, is there anything on your mind that we didn't get to or any burning questions you have for me? Well, it always seems when somebody asks that question that I had something and can't remember it. So, I'm going to go with now. Okay. <laughs> That's fine with me. Well, thanks for being on the show, Nathan. It was great to talk to you about dream cards and speculative card lists. I look forward to seeing your updated list and uh, starting to spoil all this stuff for you guys in the coming weeks. So, Yes, I've got to uh, make a rather large update right now because you recently uh, spoiled card number 46, and my set only went up to 45. Yes, we're, oh, well, it's 54. Uh, Extreme Measures is 54 cards again, so. 
Alright, so I will make 54 cards, and I will um, put something other than Bajorn Resistance in until Friday, just to confuse people. Sounds like a plan to me. Thanks for being on the show, and we'll catch you guys all next week. Thank you. Your move, Captain. We should have intercepted by now. Bird said they'd call. I'll have you checkmated your next move. <laughs> have I ever mentioned you play a very irritating game of chess, Mr. Spock? Irritating? Ah, yes. One of your Earth emotions. Well, I have one special thing to add to today's show. On Monday night, we had about 15, 20 people in the chat room, and I offered to answer three questions asked by members of the chat room and put them in this podcast. So briefly, I am going to answer those questions. So the first question is from the user Radoskal, uh, or Radoskal, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But he said, they, we saw a new affiliation icon in a mission in the last set. If they are present in the new set, how will they integrate with previous cards? So I'm thinking that's a first edition question talking about the Vulcan affiliation icon that appeared on one of the missions in Straight and Steady. Well, we did a lot of the math before we put that on there and did a lot of planning for how 22 affiliations, 22nd century affiliations were going to fit into the game because there's uh, Starfleet, obviously, and then the Vulcans, the Zindi, and uh, you can make a case for Sulevan or Andorians even, I'm not sure that those are wise choices, but you could certainly make a case for them. Uh, so we did some planning, and, and so we looked, and we we're like, we don't want to add another Herogen, Vidian, or Kazon to the game. We don't want to add another, okay, well, there's four or five unique guys, and a four or five non-unique guys, and then that's it. So we we looked at the source material, and really looked at the source material, and decided, is there enough stuff here to do something cool to justify committing to putting this in there? And, and we thought, yeah, there is. So we, we definitely put it on the, we, we set up some rules for how they were going to work. We put it on the mission. And we actually had at one point a, a dual Starfleet, dual affiliation personnel. It was Starfleet and Vulcan. Uh, ended up taking them out kind of at the last minute because it really didn't fit with what we were trying to do. Um, there are no Vulcans in uh, the next expansion, which you'll start hearing more about in the next couple weeks. Um, Vulcans are a ways away. We don't really want to start adding a new affiliation in Enforce until we kind of level the playing field with all the other ones. So until we get Romulans and Ferengi and Klingons up on the same level as every other deck, so that almost any deck can compete at any given time, obviously there's some give and take there, until we get to that point, we don't really want to add in a new affiliation. So I think that Vulcans as a full affiliation are at least two or three years away, at least that, and maybe longer. And I suppose we're going to knock on wood, but uh, a catastrophe could strike and we stop making game cards and the, the Vulcans never show up in the game. Uh, that would suck, but that, you know, obviously if some sort of catastrophe struck, then we're not really worrying about it all that much, but, um, there are ways away. So no, there are no Vulcans in uh, this next set. As for how they'll integrate, I'm we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I mean, we're not really thinking about it. We, we had taught a few just high-level conversations about what Vulcans might do. Um, there may be a way for uh, Vulcan affiliation personnel and Vulcan species personnel to work together. We don't know. We're just going to cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, but I would imagine they'll, they'll be uh, more of a standard affiliation than Starfleet. They will probably have uh, outposts and a headquarters and, and so forth. And uh, probably time location, too. So we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So the next question is from the user. Actually, the next two questions. Uh, all the questions were from everybody in the chat room, but uh, was posted by Triumph. And he wanted to know, this is a second edition question. Is there anything special about the set in light of it being Brad's last? So talking about extreme measures. Um, well, you just heard me spoil a bunch of stuff with Nathan. Um, I think the fact that it's Brad's last, and that he didn't necessarily know it was his last expansion, uh, we didn't really do anything special for it. I mean, it's going to be noted forever as the last one that Brad Decipher worked on, and I think it's pretty awesome. There's some really fun stuff in here. Um, I, I, 
I mean, you guys will start seeing it soon, but I think that it's a great expansion. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't think we went out of our way to do anything different than we usually do, which is try to make great cards that are fun and, and add some depth to the game. So I think uh, I think that we succeeded there, but you know, time will tell. And I just know that I'm sad that Brad's gone after this expansion's over. Hopefully he'll he'll come back around from time to time and help out. And I know he'll he'll always be around to help us out, answer stupid questions. But his day-to-day -day presence will be missed, I know, at least by me and hopefully by the entire community because that man has done amazing work for us for next to nothing. And the last question is, again, another 2 week question. Uh, I'm going to sort of talk about it in general, though, but it's uh, beyond make cool cards, what were design's goals for the game with Extreme Measures? Um, well, Extreme Measures is about... You know, early on, we decided it was going to be about lose five points, scoring points. Because there are a lot of affiliations that don't have ways to get early points to jumpstart some of those cards. I mean, TOS has Guinan, Starfleet has a site for sore eyes, Romulans have P&P &P and getting under your skin. But other than that, uh, you know, Bajorans are kind of left out in the cold, Ferengi, uh, Klingons, Romulans, well, not Romulans, but uh, Cardassians, Dominion, they're all just kind of left out. They don't have ways to score points early reliably. So that is why we went with this. Well, one of the reasons we went with this. So you will see a Bajoran way to score points early. You will see a Cardassian way to score points early and then a Ferengi way to score points early. Uh, and with that, lots of ways to use points because, you know, when Necessary Evil came out, everybody started looking for around-the-corner points. Uh, bonus points over the past you know 10 expansions 12 expansions well, I guess what 15 expansions since then that's kind of gone by the wayside so we wanted to sort of bring that back and make that you know useful and make extra points good for you and good for the game again so um, we definitely wanted to do a team that we hadn't done before um, Bajoran Resistance was not our first choice as the team in fact for the first four or five versions of the set it was an entirely different team, but uh, Brad and I, we just didn't like it. It wasn't working right, so we took it out and replaced it with Bajoran Resistance because, well, it's, I'll, I'll show that story another day, but um, I think Extreme Measures is going to be a, a fantastic set with uh, some really cool cards, and uh, it's not as earth-shaking as pure, uh, Peak Performance was, but I think there's some fun stuff in there. Hopefully I've answered your guys' questions. Maybe we'll make this a regular feature of the show, maybe not. But that's all for now. We will be back next week.